0: Chapter 1, verse 3, we always pray for you, this is Paul speaking to the Colossian church, and we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for we've heard that you trust in Christ Jesus and that you love all of God's people. And you do this because you're looking forward to the joys of heaven, as you have been ever since you first heard the truth of the good news. This same good news that came to you is going out all over the world, and it is changing lives everywhere. Just as it changed yours, the very first day you heard and understood the truth about God's great kindness to sinners. Holy Spirit, as we dive into this, we do say amen to that. Would you lead us and guide us and teach us? Our goal in studying the scriptures is to be transformed into the image of Jesus, to be coached, to be taught, to be led by you. Lord, would you unveil things, reveal things. Convict things. We just cry out for you to lead this study and lead this time, in Jesus' name, Amen. So we're just going to go through a few phrases in here that have jumped out, and I want to highlight them. One of those is I want to review just a touch. Uh, we looked at this phrase: "We have heard of your trust in Christ Jesus." I was away last weekend. I heard I heard David Mitchell just flat slate it, and it was super fun. Um, I was away uh, with with my wife for my birthday. It was it was awesome. It was so good, um, and it was the guys were sending me pictures from the back of like this ridiculous standing room only mess that we had going on. And I'm like, well, here we go. Uh, So have fun with it, right? What happens if this is the beginning of something? You know what I mean? What happens if we look back on this time and we go, I remember when the Lord began to pour out in Fort Collins. I was there at the ground floor. How much fun will it be 10, 15, 20 years from now, to be able to track backwards and say it was incredible to watch the Lord begin to release his, his move into our city. Amen. Sorry, I keep getting off track. I'm so sorry. <laughs> We've heard of your trust in Christ Jesus. Your trust, Paul uses this word, it really means to adhere to and to cling to. And we talked about this a couple weeks back, that your success in the kingdom is going to be about your ability to choose, choose, to cling to Jesus. We talked about the divine nature, and I want to stay in this idea of the divine nature. It's been so impressed upon me by the Holy Spirit lately. I can't get away from it. It's the only thing I think about is this divine nature. And part of that is, is Jesus' statement that is it kind of haunting and encouraging. I only do and say what I see and hear the Father do and say. That Jesus models for us this one to one encounter where he will say, I am living as a mere image of what's going on in heaven. And so, for us, the people of God, the answer is we are to be living as a mere image of him. It means we live through a heavenly lens. Paul says, We always pray for you. And we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for we have heard that you trust in Christ and that you love all of God's people. It seems like there's an, a conversation that's going on. This I can always hear it. Paul will reference this man, Epaphras. And it's almost like a conversation where Epaphras says, Paul, there's something amazing happening in Colossae. You wouldn't believe it. And Paul's question is, what is it? He said, the church there." They've chosen Jesus, they've chosen his way, but get this, they actually love each other. You see, Paul seems to highlight this as a qualifier of authentic Christianity for this young church. The word love here he uses is agapeo, agape love. How many have heard this word, agape love? So we're not gonna break down the different words for love in the Greek. I've grown up in church. I've been around. I've been through Bible college. I've heard about agape love and what is it? And, and I, the most common way of explaining it is love feasts. The problem with that phrase, love feasts, is it actually doesn't do anything for explaining it. It's more confusing, not less. And I've never understood the transla- that that translation of or that definition of it, and it feels strange. As I've been studying this, I had a breakthrough. Great. I love to entertain. Love, love the holidays. I like, I'm a, like, my favorite place to be is in the kitchen, like, prepping for a group of people. Like, like, one of my favorite things is to, like, stand over the stove and make, like, a five-hour pasta bolognese and then feed it to a bunch of people and have them go, wait, this is so not ragu. But I started thinking about this idea of love feasts and I started thinking about what we're coming up on Thanksgiving. And think about what you do at Thanksgiving when you invite a big crowd over. So we moved here. We didn't have any family here. So we started a thing called Friendsgiving, which we didn't invent, common, but we just invited a bunch of people to do life with. And and when when we're planning, we're prepping for weeks out and we're thinking through the menu. And because I'm wired a little tight. I think through whether or not everything pairs together correctly. And in years past, I've actually sent out recipes to people. Here's what I want you to bring. Go ahead and do this. I'm super not joking. So my rule is if that bothers you, you're not invited to Friendsgiving anymore. I have so many issues. So if you think about this holiday, you think about what we're doing, we're creating a place where the goal is everyone who's invited has more than enough, can partake at whatever level they want. The goal is kind of that it's an opulent display. And what Paul's talking about here, the root word, the root definition of this word agape is love. That is on display in opulent measurement. Love feasts. Jesus gives us a commandment in John 15. Love one another. Put on a love feast for each other. In context, it's a command that's given as a continual lifestyle to be lived. I'd love to say it this way. We're to live with love so opulently on display that others can draw on our love as they need until they're satisfied. Consider that for a second. There's not a whole lot of room for how I feel in that. That we are called by God to be a resource of love to those around us, whether or not they're grateful. Yikes whether or not they return it. It's actually an outworking of this divine nature through us. We're doing it because it's how we've been loved. It's what he's put on display for us. What he has said to us is, I am love, draw from me as you need until you're satisfied. And we are to model that. There's another reason Jesus says to do this. Jesus says to do it so we will walk in the fullness of joy. So what that means is our happiness and joy is the direct byproduct of our ability to live in the divine nature and put on a love display. And there's this incredible, beautiful, selfish irony in this. To the natural man, the way we achieve and get to happiness is to care for our own concerns. We take care of ourselves, we worry about us. But the spiritual man understands this, the way to achieve actual, real, authentic joy is to selflessly choose Jesus' nature and put on this opulent display of love for the world around us. And I think sometimes we are bankrupt of joy because we haven't figured out how to live with opulence in love. We can't figure out why we're not happy and we're not satisfied, and the whole time the Lord's saying, look, put on a love feast, become a resource to the world around you, and joy will be the reaction. You're going to walk in joy, not because you're happy. You're going to walk in happiness, not because you feel good. It's actually going to be a supernatural byproduct. It's a derivative of choosing to give away love. Next verse, Paul says, you do this because you're looking forward to the joys of heaven as you have been ever since you first heard the truth of the good news. And he, re- he reveals that this love is actually a byproduct of having our eyes on the right place. Our eyes are on heaven. This heavenly realm, I want to look at what that means. It just means I'm more worried and concerned about what matters to God than I am about what matters to me. Now, I know that's a fun, churchy thing to say. But it means that I lean into the heavenly realm. How do we lean into it? How do we learn this heavenly realm? You cannot learn the heavenly realm until you study the heavenly man. There is no way to learn this divine nature without studying Jesus. Jesus. So we begin to study Jesus, and we find out how he lived, and it becomes our example. Let's put it in different words. I don't forgive because I feel it. I forgive because that's what I see him do. I'm not gracious and kind because I feel it. I'm gracious and kind because that is the lifestyle that he showed me. I'm not merciful because I feel it. I'm merciful because he is merciful. I don't serve because I want to and because it benefits me. I serve because he said he didn't come to be served, but to give his life away and serve. And I'd love to make an observation that I've been wrestling with as I've been studying this. Love doesn't come natural in most areas of my life. And I only seem to actually be good at it where it comes natural. What if, though, the fact that love doesn't come natural shows us and reminds us that it's always been intended to come supernaturally? And we've been so fixated on why we can't figure out how to love, and the answer is, you're not supposed to know how to love because you're never gonna know how to love until you're drawing it from him. And I think Paul was excited for them because he understood that the love they were displaying was an actual evidence that they were connecting and drawing it from Jesus. And I would submit that we only are going to live with our love on that opulent display when we're truly drawing daily from him. Paul says you do this because you're looking forward to the joys of heaven and as you have been ever since you heard the truth of the good news. The same good news that came to you is going out all over the world. I love this phrase. It is changing lives everywhere. Just as it changed yours that very first day you heard it and understood the truth about God's great kindness to sinners. How am I doing on time? I'm doing all right. All right. I want to look at this phrase, first heard the truth of the good news. How many of you remember the first time you were impacted by the truth of the good news? Do you remember how soft and tender you were and how wrecked by God you were that first time? That in Jesus, your sin had been dealt with? Just think about that for a second. In Jesus, I am no longer guilty of sin. That in Jesus, I'd been restored to a place of right standing with God. Because of Christ, We stand right before God. I can tell by the way you're looking back at me that some of you are like, I'm not sure. You don't know what I feel. You don't know what I've done. Do you understand that if you lived perfect, you would still not be right with God? The only thing that creates righteousness is perfect blood. And there was only one who shed perfect blood. And it was him. Here's what I love, that in Jesus, we now have the opportunity to become friends with God. Think about that idea of friendship with God. The invitation of heaven. I'm going to send my son. He's going to live. He's going to die. He's going to raise again because my end game is I actually want to have friendship with you. I want to be in relationship with you. God's endgame was not to establish a set of beliefs. It was not to establish a religion. It was to restore man to a place of one-to-one encounter, where we could talk to the King, like we were always meant to. And here's my—I think—becoming my favorite. It wasn't always my favorite, but it, lately it's becoming. That as you live in Jesus and you step into this life of salvation, that relationship is actually going to make you like Him. Not just believe about Him, He's actually shaping you and me into His image. He's making us look like Him. The goal of heaven is that you look like, act like, and become like Jesus. That is the good news that God loves you enough, he wants to make you like his son. He wants to make you look like him. He wants to transform you into his son's image. You can live like and be like God because he wants your life to be hidden in him. I think a lot of times we say, in Christ I'm becoming the person I was meant to be. It's kind of correct. The goal of the father is that we become like the person of Jesus. And Paul will go on and say it's changing lives everywhere, this gospel, and I think we forget the reality of the gospel. that it changes lives wherever it goes. This root word phrase here means to begin and expand, taking over. So Paul says this gospel idea, this divine nature idea, is it is birthing and expanding and taking over wherever it goes. And I think, church, that's the reality of the gospel, if allowed. It is to overtake who we are. And what do I mean, if allowed? Here's a question for you What is the change agent that works in us for the gospel's sake? Do, 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 do. Oh, bingo. The change agent that works inside of us for the gospel's sake is the Holy Spirit. He has an assigned role from heaven to comfort us to convict us, to coach us. And he's always working to grow us and shape us into the image of Jesus. We're like, yeah, that's awesome. But he can be grieved. Paul says in Ephesians chapter four, do not grieve the Holy Spirit by the way you live. The word means to cause distress or grief or to bring sorrow. So I would say it this way, we live in a dynamic relationship with the Holy Spirit. In that, how we live has a direct effect on the Holy Spirit. Think about that for a second. How I live day to day has a direct effect on the Holy Spirit. So I would say, maybe I would rephrase it this way. I'm either living in a growing expression of the Holy Spirit on me and in me or in a diminishing expression of the Holy Spirit where he has to step back. Does that scare anybody else? That I can actually, through my daily life, affect the expression of the Holy Spirit in my life. And we have to be really careful that we don't bite into any kind of weird lie that says, it doesn't really matter, it's all grace. It's not that the grace of God isn't all-encompassing and amazing, it is. But the Lord has, decla- has built this thing and structured it in such a way that how we live affects the expression of his presence in our life. Is the gospel expanding and taking over in me? It's a question I have to ask. Am I fully surrendered to the invitation to live in this way of Jesus? Am I beginning to act like him? Am I seeing the gospel overtaking my life? If the answer is no or not really or kind of, I would love to submit to you that you're actually living in a diminished expression of the Holy Spirit. And that is not the Father's heart for us. I think we got to ask him, church. we got to have the courage to sit down with the Holy Spirit and say, am I grieving you? Am I causing you distress by the way I live? Husbands, wives, sit down, ask the Lord. The way I'm handling my spouse, is that causing you grief? How many Star Trek nerds are here with me in the room? <laughs> well, not very many of us. Wow. Weird. There we go. A few. We're super, this is definitely not a Trekkie convention. There's a thing in, in Star Trek that every time I read this, I can't help but think about. It's called a cloaking device. <laughs> Klingon warbirds had the cloaking device where they could, they could throw this cloak around and you wouldn't know they were coming. All of a sudden, I had a realization. The idea of the kingdom is that I put on Jesus like a cloaking device so nobody sees me. They actually just see him. That, what I let out in the world isn't what I feel and what I think, and it's what he feels and what he thinks. And I can have all of the attitudes and convictions and opinions that I want, but the only place those are going to be vetted that is safe is with him in his presence. Outside of his presence, what the world gets to see is him. In my home, what my family gets to see is him. We have to get over ourselves. And go back to Galatians, which says, I am crucified with Christ, and yet I'm still alive. It's a conundrum. How am I dead and living? This life I live now, I do not live according to the flesh. Sarks is the word. It means my attitude, my opinion. But now I live according to the word of God. Who is the word of God? It's Jesus. That the idea of the kingdom is I put myself into the grave every single day. And I allow the resurrected king to be reflected and live through me. He controls my attitudes. He controls my reactions. I don't care if you have to bite your tongue off. He controls your reactions. We're not biting it off to be better people. We're biting it off because we're under discipline saying, you know what, Lord? I am yours. I'm not my own. I was bought with a price. So even though I want to rip their face off, I'm gonna glorify you. That is the kingdom. That is the divine nature. And church, when we screw that up and we sit with the Holy Spirit and say, am I grieving you? I I've told you, I shared it a couple weeks back. I, I sat with him about four weeks ago and asked him that and was aghast at his reaction. Absolutely. I'm like, wait, you didn't even wait. It wasn't even like kind of. <laughs> Absolutely. And then my heart just broke. And all of this began to unfold because I realized I have allowed way too much Greg Sanders to come through. I have not been disciplined enough to force that man down and say it's only gonna be Jesus that comes out. Well, that's stuffing. No, it's not, it's kingdom. It is choosing to hide my life in him. How many times throughout the scripture will Paul say, put on this nature, wrap it up, hide yourself in it? Man, I'm so out of time. Hey, but I'm almost done, I'm finishing, let's go. He goes on and says, since you understood God's great kindness to sinners. I love this. God's kindness is simple. You're no longer guilty for your sin. He took it. And you can now become the person your sin was keeping you from being. Because heaven is for you. And as I read this, what jumped out to me was this simple truth. If God was kind and is kind to sinners, before they become believers... How can I represent him if I'm not? That word kindness means to do good or to be of benefit. If I don't live this way towards the world, how am I representing my father? Because he has already modeled for me kindness. Not to the people I know and love, to everyone. To sinners, to people who will spit in his face. Can we, the people of God, say, I am absolutely kind no matter how people treat me. I'm not kind because I feel it. I'm kind because it's what the Father taught me to do. I want to free us up. We don't have to feel it. We have to choose it. Because our lives are to reflect His heart to the world around us, and that kindness is His heart. He forgives them before they ask, and He extends mercy for their arrogance. And Church, the only way we can do this is if we're actually hidden in Jesus and he's taking the lead in our life. He's modeling, he's showing, he's choosing our behavior. And I gotta be willing to move towards him with such honesty and vulnerability that I begin to cry out, let your nature overtake me. Search me out, know me, point it out. Let's stand.